staring up, wondering at the starlight, never knowing what it meant. But now I'm here, and I can almost touch them, and their meaning is becoming clear, and it's more beautiful than I could ever imagine. And all my dreams held so long inside, have they finally happened? I've searched so far and looked so long, am I finally Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, April 1st, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Morning. Good morning and a happy Easter and a happy Passover to everyone. With us today, we have a very special guest. Andrew Keenan Bolger is joining us by telephone. Uh, Broadway fans know Andrew back from Beauty and the Beast and Susical and Mary Poppins and Newsies and most recently in Tuck Everlasting. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a few different things, including Chris Kringle, the musical, which uh, the studio cast recording just came out on Yellow Label, and uh, a little bit about Three Rivers, which is an upcoming pilot that Andrew's doing. So, Andrew, thanks for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm happy to. So a little odd time of the year to be talking about quote-unquote a Christmas musical, but Chris Kringle the musical, uh, the cast recording is now out on Yellow Label, Yellow Sound Label, and we thought that we would talk a little bit about that, and also you had some other news, so it's great to have you on. So tell us, Chris Kringle, is it truly just a Christmas musical, or is it an all-year-round type of thing? Uh, well, it's funny, you know, it is being released in the spring, which seems like an odd time, uh, but what's great is that uh, the rights for it have recently become available so that uh, people sort of all around the country are able to look into it now to prepare for the holiday season if it is a musical that they maybe want to include in their season. Um, and yes, while it is certainly um, holiday themes, there are some really beautiful standards in it. Um, things like a song called Beautiful and a song called My North Star that is sung on the cast recording by uh, Nikki and it's yeah, it's just a really great score. Uh, kind of any year, any time of the year. How long have you been involved with it? Uh, I came on board last year when um, they did a concert presentation of it at Town Hall with uh, great Broadway people uh, like Kathy Rigby, uh, Kim Crosby, uh, and yeah, I totally fell in love with the score and uh, was so glad that they were able to preserve it in this kind of cast album form. Who do you play? 
I play the eponymous Chris Kringle, uh, who uh, in this version uh, is sort of reimagined as a modern day toy maker. So it's taking a spin on an old classic. Uh, yeah, and Chris Kringle, I guess, is a, a bit more of a millennial inventor than the bearded Santa Claus figure that we know and love. How much did you just love using the word eponymous? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. I think I should be very thankful to whoever my 11th grade vocab teacher is. Finally managed to squeeze that one in. Did you Did you ever think you'd be eponymous? <laughs> it's a lot better really? than anonymous. Anonymous, right? yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought maybe your sister told you that word. Um, who's older, by the way? Should you tell us? Uh, I can tell you because I'm glad to report that I am the youngest of the Keenan Bolgers of the trio. I know and, it's funny because she's she's a good deal older than me. Oh um, my! It used to be when I was well, when I was younger, it was very obvious, and people would be like, "Oh, your big sister Celia." And now that we're both up there, oftentimes people are like, "So are you the big brother?" And I'm like, "Are you kidding? No." <laughs> Now, were your parents really frightened when they heard that not one but two of you wanted to go into show business? I think it's more than uh, well. There, well, there's another talented Keenan Bulger also. So right too. I, I know. That. Can you believe it? We're multiplying. Uh, yeah, there there are three Keenan Bulgers, and all of us um, have sort of built a career for ourselves in the arts. Uh, we had very supportive parents. Uh, you would have to be to send all three of your kids to art school, but. Um, yeah, you know, they weren't in the business at all, but they had a great appreciation of music. And we grew up in a very music-centric family with cast albums sort of blaring through every long family road trip. Uh, so I don't think that they are surprised, but uh, I think they have found some great delight uh, in the fact that we're all doing what we love. So under these circumstances, what were the cast albums that really tickled your fancy while you were on these road trips? <laughs> Well, we were a big Stephen Sondheim family, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I think probably most seven-year-olds wouldn't be as into. <laughs> but because Celia was a little bit older and had a little bit more sophisticated taste, like it was a big Sunday in the Park with George, like us singing pretty much every lyric, of course, Into the Woods, Sweeney Todd. Uh, yeah, so he was definitely a deity in the Keenan Bolger household growing up. So uh, back to this recording from Town Hall of Chris Kringle, uh, you have quite the cast here of folks you uh, worked with here. Nikki Renee Daniels, Janine LaManna, uh, Kim Crosby, Mary Stout. Uh, this is, uh, you know, was a really mm-hmm. sort of wonderful group of people. Have you, uh, have you uh, been able to get back uh, together with these folks or, or is there some sort of uh, something in the future planned with this project? Um, I'm not totally sure. I think that there are probably going to be a bunch of productions of it this holiday season. Uh, no plans for us so far, but it has been really nice uh, to kind of reconnect with a lot of these people. I know uh, like Janine LaManna and I did Susical the Musical together when I was just a teenager, and I have not seen her since. I think my last day seeing her was on a Broadway stage, and then it's been like, more than 10 years. Uh, so it was really crazy walking into the first rehearsal and hugging her. And uh, I've followed her career and seen her grow up and have a kid uh, and to kind of reconnect and share some more stories from uh, that experience that we had together and now as adults. Uh, and then uh, in the 
Uh, about two weeks ago or so, we had the public announcement that you have uh, joined ABC Television's uh, Three Rivers, uh, which is uh, a pilot comedy. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm super excited. I just got back from Los Angeles a couple of days ago from filming it. Um, it is a story about a woman who returns home after living in New York uh, to help run her family-run hotel in East Texas. Uh, and it's a bunch of kind of oddball siblings and father. And it was interestingly played by a lot of Broadway people. Uh, the pilots led by Annalie Ashford and John Larroquette and uh, myself and Stephanie Stiles, who was in Newsies, uh, get to be the two siblings in it. Uh, it was pretty wild. You're so not used to walking onto a TV set and being able to chat about like, okay, so who's seen Frozen? Um, who's really excited about Mean Girls? And like sort of being like, oh yeah, you did this show with that person. I forgot. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love him. I love her. So uh, it was really, really fun. I always feel like a fish out of water in film TV, but it, it was really tables turning. People who, who couldn't speak the Broadway lingo who were probably a little bit more outsiders for a couple weeks. Speaking of newsies, how did you spend your time during the second act? Because uh, your character, Crutchy, didn't appear uh, in it. It's true, yeah. I had an hour break, which is pretty rare, kind of in any musical. Um, I think originally uh, they were hoping that Crutchy would just come back as a different newsie. Even when we did it at Paper Mill, um, mm. I it wore an eye patch and was like in all the ensemble scenes, sort of trying to blend in, but... I don't know. I had one line as that newsy, and everyone in the audience would always start laughing because they were like, that's definitely yeah. crutchy wearing an eye patch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I was lucky. I was working on uh, some like writing projects. I was editing uh, submissions only, uh, a web series that I worked on basically for that whole second act, uh, and also making little behind-the-scenes videos for uh, the Disney on Broadway YouTube account of all of our sort of backstage antics. While um, while uh, Andrew was doing Crutchy, uh, Celia was in Merrily We Roll Along at Encores, and I got to do a joint interview with them, which I believe they said was their first joint interview. And one of the That's things that, that came up uh, was um, if you, I thought, was thinking maybe you could talk a little bit about the Sutton Foster connection. I know it's it's pretty remarkable. We're from uh, Detroit, Michigan, and. For whatever reason, I'm not sure what was in the water uh, when we were growing up, but a lot of Broadway kind of folks and siblings have come out of that. Uh, Celia was in a performing troupe when she was a kid, along with Sutton Foster and Hunter Foster and Aaron Dilly and Danny Gerwin, and they all used to perform at like a dinner theater. And Sutton was someone who my sister Maggie and I were obsessed with. Like I had my kindergarten birthday party at. Uh, at the place where they performed and Sutton was like, we were attached at her hip, like just buying for her attention. And she was an incredible babysitter to us. So another person, it's so crazy to see what she's gotten to do with her career and know that it all started in a little dusty theater in Detroit. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, Andrew, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and talking with us. Uh, it is uh, Easter and Passover, and it is a Sunday morning. <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> and you're just back from Los Angeles, so we really appreciate you taking the extra effort to meet to chat with us. 
Uh, I want to remind everybody that you can get the Chris Kringle, the musical studio cast recording out right now. It's uh, from Yellow Sound Label. And you can find Andrew Keenan Bolger at andrewkeenanbolger.com. So, so easy. And uh, the various uh, social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube at Keenan Blogger. Is that did I read that? Yes, Keenan Blogger. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> see what I did there? Yeah, I see what you did there. I, I just wanted <laughs> to make sure it wasn't a typo. So, <laughs> Well, it would get very confusing. We'd have to duke it out between who got the actual email. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, come back and chat with us, uh, and we'll talk to you soon, okay? Thanks for having me. Take care, guys. Bye. With the words we speak. Say I forgive you. I never meant to hurt you. Gonna let the healing begin with these words. I forgive you. I forgive you. Let this be the beginning, not the end. And let new hope in when you say. Share All right, for the next uh, four and a half or five hours, we're, the three of us are going to talk about Angels in America. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure, sure it will be quite as long as all the words set up on stage um, in the seven and hours and 45 minutes over at the theater, but uh, Peter and Michael and I all got a chance to see Angels in America this week. We were actually in the same performances. Uh, and so, Peter, why don't you start us off with Angels? Sure. Uh, I think it's a terrific production, and I, I feel bad for all of the people who nominate in any category because uh, it seems like Angels in America can fill all the categories and um, the acting categories because everybody is so sensational in it. I will say that the thing that struck me as the most odd, though, and um, I, I hope I'm not offending any uh, the people by saying this, but all right, I'll come down to brass tacks. You can tell I'm really um, reluctant to say this, but I will say it. Back in 1993, when the play debuted on Broadway, there was no question that Rodden Liebman was the leading uh, man and that uh, Stephen Spinella was in the featured category. That's the way it played out. Rodden Liebman won Best Actor in a Play. Stephen Spinella won Best Featured Actor in a Play. It seems different to me now. And I guess it may even feel different to the people who put this together because you may notice that Andrew Garfield gets billing over Nathan Lane. And that's sort of surprising given the fact that Nathan Lane is certainly a substantially larger name. Uh, in the theatrical firmament than Andrew Garfield, uh, simply from experience. Nobody's talking about who's a better actor. Uh, we're only talking about experience, and uh, Nathan Lane has certainly earned first billing and has had it for a number of years now. Uh, that said, um, it's wonderful that he's been willing to take second billing uh, under these circumstances. And uh, But it really did seem more to be um, a vehicle for um, Andrew Garfield, who plays Pryor Walter, uh, a, a young man who's been in a relationship for four and a half years with Lewis. It's been going extraordinarily well, but now AIDS has reared its head. And unfortunately, he has it. And his boyfriend, Lewis, is having a tough time dealing with it. And there's no question that it gets very, very graphic as time goes on. Nathan Lane plays Roy Cohn, a lawyer who denies he's homosexual. 
You can't be homosexual. Why? Because homosexuals have no clout, no power. Mm. Uh, they're invisible. Uh, so how could he be homosexual? It's a wonderful um, and fascinating piece of rationalization that he has there. There's no question that he's gay, uh, but he will not see it in those terms because he equates it with uh, powerlessness. And that really is something. Um, I, I, thought, I think it's one of the most brilliant things in Angels in America, that that uh, is something Tony Kushner came up with. It's needless to say, came up with a number of wonderful things. Uh, but what really did fascinate me more is that um, it seemed to me Andrew Garfield had more stage time than Nathan Lane. It didn't seem to me that way in 93 um, when Ron Liebman seemed to have more stage time to me than Stephen Spinella. But, um, but anyway, what's really nice about um, the ending of the play is that um, we see some unlikely people being together. And that especially is true of Joe's mother. Now, who's Joe? Joe is another closeted homosexual, and there's a very moving speech he gives to his wife. He has married a woman. He calls her Buddy. Now, that's kind of interesting, too, because um, she is his buddy, and she's much more his buddy than his wife. Um, she won't be his buddy for long, but not just because she suspects he's having uh, homosexual relations in Central Park, but uh, she's going off the deep end, too. Of course, one can effectively argue that the reason she's going off the deep end is because she's married to a homosexual man. But what's so moving is when he says to her something to the effect of, I have fought this all my life. And the reason he's fought this all his life is because he's Mormon. She is, too. And the thing is, that religion, I don't know if any religion sanctions homosexuality per se. Um, if there's one, I haven't heard of it. But this one is especially tough on homosexuals. And so to have him say, I have fought it all my life makes us feel so bad for him because he can't be who he is because Joseph Smith um, talked to an angel allegedly um, 150 odd years ago. So it's very, very sad, you know, to see these people in this situation that um, a religion has really forced them into this corner. So uh, Joe's mother, of course, is scandalized and she actually comes from Utah and uh, trying to straighten matters out. So it's very surprising at the end of the play to see uh, the end of the second play, um, to see her uh, with Lewis and with um, Pryor and, in fact, with uh, Belize, as he's nicknamed, um, a very effective Broadway debut, by the way, by Nathan Stewart Jarrett playing a nurse who um, <laughs> doesn't take any crap from anybody. Um, he knows that nurses are at a premium, and therefore he tells people off, even doctors. It doesn't matter. He's not worried about losing his job. He knows the lay of the land, and he knows what he can get away with. And um, he wants to do a job. He wants to do a good job, no question, but... But um, there's all sort of bureaucratic red tape that could go on in hospitals, and he just is cutting through that red tape at every moment. And um, what happens between him and Roy, Roy Cohn, and what happens as a result of Roy Cohn uh, having AIDS, and what it helps, what it does to help, ironically enough, um, prior, is is a, a very fascinating plot twist too. Well, anyway, you know, I. I did love the 93 production, and what I was hearing beforehand was that the sets in this production were a little meager. Uh, in fact, they are, but if you saw the 93 production, which really made an effort to make it look like an off, off 
Broadway production. For example, a tree was simply a branch um, on a flat where you actually saw the wires holding the branch. They purposely made it look like an off-off-Broadway production that was just a little uh, cleaner, <laughs> not as distressed as you might see off-off-Broadway. But here there are a lot of turntables, and um, there's even something that rises from, shall we say, um, the orchestra pit, if you will, a little back. But uh, we'll use that as a, a way of getting you to uh, envision it. Um, it. It's proper or ornate, ironically enough, though it's not ornate at all. But um, I think while some people may say, oh, what a, what a cheap-looking production, believe me, the original one was purposely cheaper. So, uh, so uh, a lot of uh, credit to the acting, which was riveting. Um, another Broadway debut was Susan Brown as Hannah Pitt. But what was really... Um, flabbergasting to me was to open the program and see that Denise Goff was playing Harper. I had, I had heard that, but I had forgotten it. And she was magnificent out of St. Anne's warehouse earlier this year in a completely different part. Um, though when you come down to both of them were drug addicts, but of different kinds, um, in people, places and things. So this has been an amazing year for, um, Denise Goff. And it certainly is an amazing year for angels in America both Millennium Approaches Part 1 and Perestroika Part 2. All right. Uh, Michael, what did you think? Another thing about Denise Goff is, I, I don't know about you, but I thought her American accent was letter perfect, which wasn't always the oh. case with some of the other people. I, um, I was thinking that how lucky I am to have been privileged to see four excellent productions of this incredible masterwork in my lifetime, the original Broadway production, uh, the wonderful, magnificent TV film directed by Mike Nichols with an all-star cast, including Al Pacino and Meryl Streep, uh, the signature theater mm. off-Broadway revival of 2011, which was superb. Absolutely. And now, and now this one, uh, I, you know, and I think this, play also falls into that category of works that we've mentioned before, where I think people have so much respect for it that they don't try to do it unless they are really confident that they can do a very good job with it. And that has been the case in all four of these productions that I've seen, and certainly this one as well. I, uh, your point about... Um, about Pryor, uh, you know, as opposed to Roy Cohn was was interesting, Peter, but uh, but it complicated by the fact, among other things, isn't it true that uh, originally that uh, Stephen Spinella won a supporting Tony for the first part and a lead Tony for the oh, second? Oh, did he? Oh, I don't uh, remember that. I think or, or nominated. I, I you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't one two in a row. He won two in a row. No question about that. Yeah, two in a row. So I guess maybe that the uh, you know and of course when the original production opened they did not immediately begin doing both plays in rap they did um, Millennium approaches for I think several months and then Perestroika was added because it hadn't been finished yet so people couldn't really experience yeah they couldn't experience the entirety of it until you know the second one opened and maybe that accounts for uh, the elevation of the category of the role of of prior walter yeah, but anyway one, the first one he won fe- featured actor in a play in 93 and the second one for be- for best actor or is uh, that um yes you're right absolutely i just checked yes mm-hmm. good for you well yeah i mean but no but it, it's to your point uh the, the thing is this magnificent you know achievement of tony kushner it's it's a you know it's an epic and you have to 
look at the whole thing in order to, <laughs> to you know, to, to decide, among other things, who's going to be featured and who's going to be uh, the lead actor. So anyway, um, please go see this. It's it's um, so amazing to have to have seen this piece, uh, you know, uh, four different versions of it over you know, intervals of passing of time. And I, as far as I know, uh, not a word has been rewritten, but to look back on what was originally written in the, in the mid nineties and what Kushner had to say about, you know, politics, Republicans versus Democrats, conservatism versus liberalism, race, climate change. And then of course, AIDS, which, hovers over the whole thing it's it's i i find it extraordinary there are there are some lines in the play that you will think oh he had to have rewritten that but no I, no i don't think so um they just they'll make you gasp just to think that he was when he was when he wrote them and how they still apply now sometimes in a different way from a different perspective and sometimes in the same way it's 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 really a work for the ages um i think andrew garfield uh this is so impressive to me because he certainly did not have to pick a project that is so challenging and difficult i thought he was wonderful when he did death of a salesman uh, uh of several years ago, just great in it uh, with Phil Hoffman, et cetera. But that, you know, in terms of length and complexity and, uh, you know, stamina, th- th- there's obviously no comparison uh, between the role in, of Biff and the role of Pryor. So I think, and Andrew Garfield is a, you know, he's a movie star aside from, um, you know, his work on Broadway. And, and he, so it's not something that, that he that he really needed to do for cred, I don't think. But but I, uh, I you know I guess he just really knew that he was up for it, and so did the director Marion Elliott, and and it's really wonderful to see him do do such a challenging role. I I am um, I'm a little concerned about him screaming so much. Um, and frequently in a, in a high pitched voice, it, it sounds to me that sometimes he does so much of it that I, I worry it might be taking a toll on his voice, um, you know, for, for eight a week. Um, but I guess we, you know, um, I, I mean, I hope not. Uh, and, uh, I, I guess that remains to be seen for people who see the show later in the run, but I hope he's able to, um, to be careful as far as that and, and not have any kind of a, um, bad effects, uh, uh, you know, ultimately on his, on his voice. Um, I thought the cast was uniformly excellent, except I did think that Lee, Lee Pace, who is the only fairly recent, uh, addition to the cast, I thought he was very in and out, um, some very, very effective, wonderful moments. And then other times I kind of felt there was a sameness to his, um, his cadences in his speech and also his his hand gestures and his body language. Uh, another thing that struck me about him the first time he came out, I had a a, a, a real kind of weird moment because I thought he looks exactly like Clive Owen did on stage in in M Butterfly a few years ago. Did anyone else notice that? I can't say I did. No. Uh, well, I, I, I think he looks a lot like him. I, I, I did a kind of a oh wow, look at that. Um, uh, He's very yeah six five I believe apparently is the figure I heard. Um, I uh, oh uh, just one thing to end as a question: Do either of you guys know why um, 
there are multiple uh, – there's cases of um, doubling and tripling among the supporting players. You'll have one actor playing three or four uh, supporting parts. But um, you have a lot of women playing men, but – not one case of a man playing a woman. Do you suppose uh, that that was done because uh, most of the main characters in the narrative are male and it was Kushner's attempt to um, kind of uh, balance that out? I got the impression uh, that this was another way of um, dealing with an off-off-Broadway situation where people were pressed into service despite uh, whatever sex they were. But it doesn't answer your question about why, indeed, um, no men are playing women. But uh, I, I think I, I, my guess is it's both of those things together. And, and the reason that women are not uh, – that uh, men are not playing women is is because of what I said. I guess the bulk of the characters, uh, uh, the main the main characters, I especially, are male. Although there are some very good women's roles too. But so maybe that was his way of uh, redressing it. The very first character we see is um, a rabbi, uh, played by Susan Brown in this case, um, and then there are there are several other. Instances of uh, Roy, Roy Cohn's doctor, uh, you know, is played by a woman, and uh, it's it's just interesting that, and that seems to have been kept uniformly over these productions that I've seen, um, including the the TV film in which sure. Uh, sure. Meryl Streep was the rabbi yeah. at the beginning. Right? Yeah, you know. indeed. Yeah, so I think that's the convention. One thing else I'd like to say is I think it's a very valuable evening for young people to see um, because I have noticed – I know a lot of young people uh, through teaching at uh, Cincinnati Conservatory of Music, uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University, uh, other places too where I've lectured. And it's amazing to me how today's generation of gays do not fear – AIDS at all. Oh, all right. So you take a pill, so you take a cocktail, so what? You know, I, I'm amazed. Um, a, a friend of mine talked about going to a party where he was approached by um, a guy who wanted to um, bed him. And um, he would run into him at parties now and then. And, the, and my friend always said no. But about the sixth or seventh time that he was at a party, the, the guy who um, had been nicely propositioning him, it, it wasn't obnoxious, he said, but happened to mention offhand, um, I'm HIV positive. Now, you would think that would come up early enough. To be fair, if my friend had said yes <clears throat> on, the, on the first uh, meeting, I am interested, it is possible and even probable he might have said, I should tell you right now that I'm HIV positive. But it was, to think that it's an afterthought um, in 2018 is, is really something for those of us who lived through those years and lost plenty of friends yes. during those terrible, terrible years when um, so many people, if, if they got as much as a pimple on their arm, would say, uh-oh, you know, and uh, this is the end. And, um, and one of the things that's also effective about the play is that AZT is seen as um, a great, great hope, and it turned out it didn't turn out to be that at all. There is a line late in the play where um, the downside of AZT is mentioned, but and I won't even be surprised if younger listeners don't even know what I'm talking about when I say AZT, but uh, they might because it's actually mentioned in Rent as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, but aside from that, um, you know, it, it didn't turn out to be the panacea that everybody had hoped or at least yearned for panacea. So, <clears throat> so really, uh, I do think it's valuable for people to see um, from historical purposes what it was like in those days. And by the way, 
prior, um, excuse me, Pryor's fi- final speech at the end of basically eight hours of the show, so beautifully written by Tony Kushner. I had tears in my eyes. He kind of sums up a lot of what Peter was just mentioning, and 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 in such a, a simple and beautiful way, it, it, it's incredibly moving. And I'll, I've I've always looked forward. To, to that speech ever since the first time I heard it. And uh, Andrew Garfield does a beautiful, beautiful job with it. I think you'll you'll be wiping away some tears yourself. Yes, and what never occurred to me before, even though I saw the original production twice, and yes, the signature revival, and yes, the movie, uh, it's a variation on Emily's speech in our town because it is about life and appreciating life and uh, yep. You know, and I never thought of that before, but it it, it does take into uh, there's a wonderful line. Um, I'm not sure it comes in that actually in that speech, but um, he talks about the addiction to being alive. Mm. Wow. That's a nice line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, would that everybody had it. You know, I mean, needless to say, there are some unfortunate people who don't have that. But uh, but still, the addiction to being alive um, is true for uh, a substantially large part of the population. Uh, I wanted to throw in that the original production, I just took a look at it, uh, only had eight actors in it. So that might have been why we had so much doubling. Uh, oh, yes. No, ab- absolutely. I, I'm just I am still curious about the uh, a little curious about the, why women as men, but not men as women. But I think it's for the reasons that I that I guessed. Well, which brings up a good point. There are there are uh, people who crawl around the stage um, uh, dressed in, um, all, let's say, camouflage. Um, uh, that isn't quite accurate, but uh, and in fact, the angel in this production is <laughs> is much more off off Broadway low tech than um, than the original production because actually the angel is hoisted for much of the evening by these uh, gentlemen and uh, and a woman too, I believe, who uh, uh, actually hold the angel in the air. It used to be that the angel flew in through wires, and the irony is, late in the in Perestroika, the second play, uh, the wires are used. They had the wires there; they could have used them all along. But this was obviously, obviously, a conception that um, the expert director, Marianne Elliott, we should have mentioned her name by now, and I apologize, but um, this is something she obviously wanted. And um, and the angel here really does look worse for wear than, uh, than the original one. Uh, it really is, uh, you know, she could haunt a house, and that's pr- pretty much what she does. I will say that that to me was maybe a minor flaw in the production, because it was, I couldn't understand why those people in yeah. Camel camouflage were only used in part two i mean if they were used just for uh, to hoist the angel that that would make perfect sense to me but in part two they were also used to move scenery mm. uh whereas in act one as far as i could tell see the scenery just moved on and off by itself so i uh i think that seemed a little inconsistent and it just took me out of it a bit because i was wondering why uh you know she had used them uh for two different purposes in, in, in the two parts, but, but nothing major. It's, it's just, uh, uh, it's a, a great production with, with lots of arresting images, especially when, um, when, uh, prior climbs up to heaven, basically, <laughs> or, yeah. or whatever that, that other world is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you guys have covered, uh, Mostly everything that I was thinking, so I just let me throw in a few extra things here. Um, Peter, you talked about the sets being scarce, but on on one hand they were very sparingly used, and then 
they had very impressive entire hydraulic sets that lifted yeah. through the floor. Yes. Uh, they had Though I will say <laughs> that when we were in Roy, Roy Cohn's apartment uh, house, um, they were too spare because that they should, really should have gone to town on, on uh, making that look elaborate. Right. Um, now, it is possible that uh, I, Roy Cohn never had me over his house, but um, <laughs> I, I, I think it's entirely possible that uh, he lived in, in quite a spiffy place and it didn't look it. Um, and I will admit it's only one scene that you see there, but I still think they should have um, made that place look a little more well, a lot more ornate, frankly, uh, to because he seemed to be the type of person who really wanted to flaunt it, as they say, the producers. You know, he had it and he, he wanted to flaunt it as my guess. You know, who knows? You know, some people do live in, uh, in ascetic spaces, you know, even if they have money. But I didn't get that impression of Roy Cohn. So anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Hey, that's OK. They had that one, you know, five second gag where the first time they used the hydraulics was when the fire came through the floor uh, (laughs) with Pryor Walter um, that I was thought to myself, well, that's a five second gag that cost him (laughs) (laughs) $30,000. And then they did a lot of rain and snow. Yes. um, Yeah. Yeah. And it was really well done. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I yeah. have a, um, a a short um, Roy Cohn story, believe it or not. Uh, in the mid '80s, I was going to school and working at NYU, and I, uh, you know, had an office job, and I was getting tuition remission, so it was great. Anyway, um, one day I saw an announcement from a, a young Republican committee or whatever that Roy Cohn was coming to speak on, on campus. And this, you know, this must have been like right around the time of the setting of the the uh-huh. uh, the first scenes of, of Angels in America. Um, and so this announcement, I noticed, um, I forget what it did say, but what it didn't say <laughs> was, you know, it certainly didn't go into his history as one of the the most vile, evil politicians, you know, that America has ever known, uh, because uh, I mean, they wouldn't have done that because they were plugging his speech. So I uh, wrote a letter to the um, to the editor of the paper, and I guess also I copied it to the you know to the Young Republican Committee, and uh, I remember I signed my name and I and I signed. Uh, the name of the school where I was working just to identify myself. And so one day the, the, this uh, leader of this young Republican group shows up at, at my at our office and and hands me this screed, uh, you know, d- defending Roy Cohn and telling me what a horrible oh. person I was to, oh. you know, to object to him speaking on campus and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, to make a long story short, the head of, uh, of the school where I worked called me in and I was a little a little little worried about it. And all, but he was very, very nice. He just said he said the only thing you did wrong is to, is to put your name on the uh, the name of the school on the letter because it, it makes it sound like that you're a spokesman for everyone here. And of course you can't really claim to say that. He said, although he said between you and me, he said, of course I agree with you a hundred percent and I'm glad you sent the letter. <laughs> so uh, that was as close as I got to Roy Cohn. I never actually met him. Did you guys see the NT live recording of uh, angels? Mm. No, uh, I uh, think to myself, with this cast and this limited run and things like that, I wonder if NT Live or Broadway HD or somebody's going to record this. Uh, so few people are going to get a chance to see this 
this important work. Um, I wonder if, if this will be an announcement that we'll be seeing, which would be really welcome to me. I'd, I'd love to see this professionally recorded and available to the public. But do, um, but do you think they would do it, but basically only – isn't it only one major cast change? Uh, yeah, I think there is only one major cast change, but I, 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 I don't know. Or I hope that the NT Live is made available – not oh, just yeah. for cinema, but for streaming and things like that. And uh, I don't know if there's any more showings in the MT Live um, going to be made uh, available at any any time in the future. Um, uh, is there a possibility? Do you think that there is a an ensemble award uh, in the Tony Awards uh, possible here? Uh, I certainly think it's possible with the Drama Desk Awards. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and um, I, I think it's possible with another show we may be speaking about today as well. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, boy, I mean, I just see this dominating so many categories if, yeah. Uh, yeah. if that doesn't happen. Uh, and to wrap up this morning, I saw Angels in America originally in 93 and 94, Perestroika and Millennium. Um, uh, separate, as Michael was mentioning before, um, and I'm so angry at myself for what I didn't know and realize when I was because I think about ninety three, ninety four when I was watching this. Um, I'm so glad I got a chance to see it again, and I encourage if you, if anybody has a chance to see this, they should do what they can to get to New York to see this. Um, it's a, it's such an important show. It's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out at the box office, because needless to say, this is not a tourist attraction per se. Um, Relatively so. small theater. Uh, and, mm, mm, and I think yeah. that they're only selling it in pairs. You have to go see both. Is that true, I think? I, I think I had heard that that was the case in the beginning, and then they relented. Uh, that's okay. the information I got. Which usually happens with uh, such things. I remember the Kentucky Cycle, a great, yeah. great evening in the theater, um, which I was amazed didn't get good reviews, had the same policy. you got to buy two. Uh, second thought, you know, right this way, your table's waiting whenever you want to <laughs> come. So, um, yeah, it's, it's – uh, yeah, I, this show – of course, it is a limited run, this Angels in America. It's not going to be here forever. And um, – it's closing July 1st, which indeed um, is really essentially the start of the summer season. I mean, because kids stay in school till basically um, June 20-something or other. So, you know, they're, they're getting out of town before the summer comes, um, probably knowing that uh, they're not going to be a big summer attraction. And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm sure it has more to do with the fact that who's available and who wants to spend this much time doing this show. But um, still, uh, this is not a tourist attraction as we know it. Um, uh, before we move on, the last thing I want to say is that I, it, when I was walking up to the Angels in America theater, it occurred to me that, um, that Angels in 93, 94, um, came out at the same time as the, I think it was the last revival of My Fair Lady, which was in 93, 94 as well. And here we are again with a very similar season. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So right. I'm sure we will talk about My Fair Lady in the upcoming weeks. Uh, next, um, we got a chance to see uh, – Peter and Michael got a chance to see Lobby Hero. So Peter, why don't you start us off with Lobby Hero? 
Yeah, this was a very effective um, evening as well, and um, I uh, enjoyed it uh, tremendously. Mostly, um, it took me by surprise because while I saw the original production at Playwrights Horizons uh, many, many moons ago, um, the play didn't stay with me. Mm-hmm. And um, it, 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 it's not that I had a bad time when it first came out, but I, it just didn't stay with me. So to be reminded of this um, was really um, very effective because I was hanging on every word. Um, this is a, it's hard to write a play about a slacker. It hmm. really is. Um, and uh, Kenneth Lonergan is very successful here in showing us the life of a slacker, a guy who doesn't even particularly have big dreams. A lot of slackers do. Um, but way down deep, this guy, Jeff, beautifully played by Michael. Is it Sarah? Sarah? Does anybody know? I don't. Do you know how it's pronounced? I think it's Sarah. Okay. I think, I think it's Sarah, too. <laughs> okay. Well, he's terrific. And... Um, Playing the slacker who's who's entrusted with being the doorman of uh, a high rise building and um, and he's not good at his job. He, um, in fact, works the night shift. And what he will often do is lock the door and go to sleep. Um, he, you're not supposed to do that, of course, but uh, he figures he can get away with it because how many people are going to come in the dead of the night and, and all that? Well, um, he does have a boss um, who is very effective at the way he speaks to him and uh, really uh, chews him out for, for doing a bad job. And what's wonderful about this character, William, is the fact that even though he doesn't have a glamorous job, he's his boss, but it's not a glamorous job, needless to say. Um, <clears throat> he takes it very seriously. And I admire people who take their job seriously. And um, so I admire Jeff, I'm sorry, William quite a bit for um, really seeing this job, not as the final job he'll have in his life. He is working hard to uh, make something more of himself. So there you have two people who are um, at odds. And um, what you also have are another essential boss, essentially a boss and an, um, and an underling with uh, Bill and Don. Bill is indeed a police officer who's done well in his time and in fact is very much admired by Dawn, a female police officer who's just out of the academy and is just learning the ropes and thinks that Bill is the sun and the moon and in fact um, is even uh, interested in him in, in a carnal way. So so there are going to be a lot of complications here as well because um, you know it's never a good idea to get involved with anybody you work with. But um, <laughs> sometimes good ideas don't occur to us when uh, opportunity arises to have um, relations with somebody. So, so um, I also think that the two people playing these parts, um, Chris Evans, um, who's certainly made a reputation of himself in Hollywood, but making a dynamic Broadway debut, and uh, Belle Powell uh, playing Dawn are, are quite fine as well. Um, Chris Evans really has that power that uh, police officers have. They 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 know they're the law, and they know um, how much they want to bend it, how much they will bend it for others, um, how corrupt they'll be. They don't think of themselves as corrupt because they're police officers, and therefore mm. they're entitled. So um, so there's a lot of that in there, and Bell Powell getting her innocence uh, really um, thrashed uh, as a result of this. So the way this all comes together is so fascinating. I really don't want to uh, say very much more about it, except you're dealing with a very, very surprisingly effective play um, who, who is hardly um, about somebody who's hardly a Shakespearean hero. Um, and um, 
and it's very nicely produced. What I am going to say, though, is it's now at the Hayes Theater. Um, I used to think it was the Helen Hayes Theater, but suddenly it's the Hayes Theater. But more to the point, <laughs> um, we had heard about the renovations uh, for so long. And um, I, I, I hate to be fussy about this, but um, has that carpet been replaced in the lobby? Because I thought it looked rather threadbare. Maybe that's the design. I don't know. But um, everybody, give me your opinion when you go in the Hayes and see if um, the f- carpet looks good to you or if indeed um, the carpet's been replaced. I mean, I, I, I have no idea, but um, I was I was very disappointed in um, the uh, renovation of the Hayes. I expect you to go in there and go, ooh, um, one of our most faithful listeners, Robert Le- Lobiondo, uh, once criticized me for saying the place reminds me of a suburban movie theater, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'll have to stand by that. Mm-hmm. God loves Second Stage for making it happen. This is a wonderful thing for the Second Stage. Now has a Broadway theater. What a tremendous thing for a, a theater company that started way uptown um, on 76th Street and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, they have that other handsome theater on 43rd Street, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I should be a little more understanding about the fact that they um, money is tight and it's not easy to to get this happen. So, so I, in fact, I'm even going to apologize for even bringing it up. But um, uh, just in case you were expecting to be dazzled, I don't think you will be. All right, Michael, what did you think? Well, yeah, unfortunately, I have to agree on that. I think the color scheme for the renovation is very odd and not pleasing, and I really wish they had not done that. I I won't say anything more. People can make their own judgments. It's distracting, I think. I really don't like it at all, and I'm not sure why they decided to go that way with it. Uh, I think it was sort of a attempt to bring the the old to the new and, and honor the old within the new, but I personally don't think it was successful um the production however is quite successful kenneth lonergan i would say um in his plays and his film scripts is a writer who um tends to write about big drama in very small lives uh that's uh true of uh other plays such as This Is Our Youth and his screenplays uh, for such really wonderful films as You Can Count On Me and Manchester by the Sea, which is only uh, about a year ago. That that was a really, really great script. Um, He has a wonderful facility for that. And it turns out that Michael Cera... um, is 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 very good at delivering uh, these kinds of lines and characters. He, uh, Michael also uh, starred in a production of This Is Our Youth uh, in two, in twenty fourteen, an off Broadway revival, and he yeah he really. Um, he really has it down. And also I felt – and a, a friend, at least one friend of mine agreed with me that, that Michael Sarah seems better cast um, in this central role in Lobby Hero than the, uh, the fellow who played it originally off-Broadway, Glenn Fitzgerald, who – I don't know. I, he just seemed a little uh, uh, too confident and, and frankly a little too good-looking. Uh, I think that uh, – we're supposed to think that this guy is um, – you know, he feels inadequate in many ways. He, he's something of a screw up. Uh, it turns out that his father was a, uh, a, uh, a Navy man, a big Navy man, career Navy man. But, uh, but Jeff, is that his name? Is that mm-hmm. the character? Yeah. Jeff. But Jeff, um, got kicked out of the Navy for smoking pot, you know, which is kind of embarrassing. So he's carrying all that weight. And, um, 
that's just something that happens to him. Both Chris Evans and Bell Poli or Pauli, not sure how to pronounce it, are both impressive in act in just the general acting of, of their very interesting characters and their dynamic, uh, their relationship between each other. But also their, t- again, to me, flawless New York accent. Uh, Chris Evans is from Boston and Bell Poli is British. I don't. I don't think you would ever guess that they weren't born and bred in in one of the suburbs of New York City. Uh, so it's really great to them. And also, uh, again, Chris Evans is quite a movie star. Um, he could have he could have picked um, a much more central, pivotal, uh, flashier role. Uh, for his Broadway debut, but uh, I think it was very smart of him to fit into an ensemble as he does here. And I think that I'm pretty sure that that this is the play and the production that Peter was alluding to when he mentioned an ensemble award. Um, It would be entirely appropriate in this case. Uh, I I, I have a question for you two guys. Uh, This production features our stage that revolves to a certain extent. And I was wondering if you felt it added um, or detracted or or really didn't have an effect either way on the effectiveness of the production. It did seem to me unnecessary. I didn't mind it, uh, Mm -hmm. but uh, I was surprised when that set moved uh, because it didn't need to. Someone suggested that it's it's mostly there to, uh, to, as a metaphor for looking at things from a different perspective because okay, a lot of that. a lot of the play is is the uh the characters having really kind of moral arguments on what's the right thing to do um so i think maybe it's a subtle uh nod to that and not not i don't think it's done for a, a reason such as well we want to be able to see uh the actors from a different angle you know because they can obviously move around anyway um but who but who knows it's it's certainly an interesting device and um please if you see the show uh, d- directed by Trip Coleman, by the way, uh, give us your opinion on whether the revolving stages uh, adds to it or or not. So uh, another show where we have a different way of looking at the actors and it's a set device that is used is Three Tall Women. Oh, wow. Uh, the three of us got a chance to see that. So, uh, Michael, do you want to start us off with Three Tall Women? Well, I can start. I uh, This is one of those cases where, for whatever reason, I had never seen a production or read the play. I very much remember when it, when it first uh, came out off-Broadway in 1994 uh, because, among other things, it, it marked um, – in many people's eyes, it marked a return to full power for Edward Albee, who had had several, several years of um, – uh, plays that were commercially and or considered artistically unsuccessful. But this one uh, was embraced, I think, by everyone, and it won a Pulitzer Prize. It went on to win a Pulitzer Prize. And it's really um, a fascinating play with three characters, three female characters of different ages. One is uh, A, who is 91 years old, and she's very patrician and autocratic, uh, wealthy, very proud. She has a mild case of Alzheimer's. Um, B is uh, her 52-year-old caretaker. And then C is a 26-year-old a woman who works for the law firm that that uh, that represents A, and she's there uh, for paperwork 
purposes and things like that. And then there is another character, sort of. There is sort of another character in the play <laughs> that I wish I could talk about. I wish I could talk about more, but I can't because I think other people, you know, um, certainly some other people might be in my position of, of never having seen or read this play. And you don't want anything spoiled. It would really, um, I think compromise your enjoyment of the play than to as opposed to going into it completely not knowing anything and just being amazed and surprised by what Albie has in store for us. Um, Glenda Jackson is absolutely fabulous and magnificent in this play as a I I only had the pleasure of seeing her on stage once before in Macbeth uh, quite a few years ago with Christopher Plummer as Macbeth and and even though I seem to remember that production getting very very mixed to negative reviews uh, to me it was I couldn't I was just so excited to be in the theater while she was acting uh, so it's been um it's been a long time, uh, and and then of course she went and had a career in politics, so she went away from acting for many years, but um, returned uh, apparently spectacularly uh, to play the title role in King Lear, uh, and I did not get to see that. I don't know if it was. Um, what, do, you, do you guys know offhand if that was t- cinecast? Not that I know. I don't know. Okay, well, it, well, whether or not it was, I didn't see it. So this was my first time uh, seeing Glenda Jackson since Macbeth, and I'm so thrilled that she's back in such great company as Laurie Metcalf and Alison Pill. And speaking of great company, directed by Joe Mantello, who, of course, played one of the leads in the original production, uh, the original Broadway production of Angels in America. So there's a lot of full circle happening on Broadway now. And, and it's wonderful to see that, uh, to see people turn up uh, in different guises and see the connections between between plays and playwrights and actors. Uh, it's, it's, um, there, there is, I think, a fair amount of dreck on Broadway right now, especially in terms of... Um, some of the new musicals but then we're also getting productions like three tall women and angels in america to to really more than balance it so uh don't um don't despair about broadway yet uh Uh just just uh if you think everything looks like it's strict look a little further and look to the also look to the non-musicals um although uh you know, I hasten to add that the band's visit is a wonderful musical. So I'm not talking about every musical, but we we've got a lot going on in terms of um, uh, in terms of plays, play revivals, and uh, maybe not so much new plays, although there's you know some of those as well. Uh, don't don't just stop at the musical listings <laughs> when you're tr- trying to pick a show. Please please look at the other non musical offerings as well. Uh, Peter, what did you think of Three Tall Women? Uh, frankly, Michael, this was the play I meant where I thought they'd be an ensemble. That's what, <laughs> that's what I meant as well. Yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, boy, are they terrific. Um, Glenda Jackson may get the biggest laugh of the night just by saying no. The word <laughs> no. And it tore the house down. Um, so um, what I I did see the play way back in 94, uh, I think it was. And um, I don't remember it being this funny. And I have a feeling that that's because of Laurie Metcalf, who is hilarious during the first, um, essentially first act. It's done without an intermission. But um, during the first part, she is hilarious being the 
the tired, long-suffering caretaker of uh, this woman. And um, it's not an easy job. Any of us who's ever had to do it knows that. And um, with the ex- the young woman executive there who's looking for answers about money matters and uh, all, all, all of that um, red tape stuff, uh, you know, occasionally trying to make sense of things and Laurie Metcalf essentially putting up a hand and saying, don't, don't even try, you know, let her say what she's saying. Uh, don't, don't take it seriously. All that. This is a more sinister version of a play that um, I, 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 I shouldn't even mention it because I imagine very few people know it. But if anybody around remembers, you know, I can't hear you when the water's running and a, a hit from 1966. The fourth play was called I'm Herbert. And it was about a man, a, a long time married man and woman who are now, um, I'm afraid to say, senile. And um, they don't remember very much about their histories. And um, it becomes quite comical. This is uh, this has more of an edge to it. But um, it, there, it, I, I just didn't remember it being so funny. So keep that in mind it's a funny play for at least the first half um you can tell it's a play from way back when you know why because Uh, twice in the show twice in the show somebody says thank you and the person who answers says you're welcome instead of no problem which is replaced um (laughs) which is replaced (laughs) you're welcome uh, as time has gone on so um so that's uh pretty impressive as well glenda jackson as if she never said goodbye. I'm mm-hmm. telling you, it's amazing. This is not an easy role. There's a lot of stuff. Lines. Lines. <laughs> lines. <laughs> yeah, more lines than all the, the, the backyards and um, where people are hanging out their laundry in America. I mean, it's, it's incredibly <laughs> impressive that um, she's letter perfect in doing this. Um, you know, it would have been very easy for Glenda Jackson to come back in a revival of The Importance of Being Earnest because Lady Bracknell is a great role, but she doesn't appear very much in the show. Yeah, she really doesn't. She makes a late entrance in Act uh, 1. She doesn't appear in Act 2 at all. Uh, she makes a, an appearance in Act 3. Um, I think next to The Phantom of the Opera, it may be the least time on stage for the most famous roles. So um, she could have done that, but no. She obviously wanted to challenge herself, and she did so amazingly. So uh, so really a terrific uh, work, and uh, it must be amazing for Alison Pill to uh, be on stage with these two grand ladies um, and uh, be able to really um, get so close. I'm reminded of what Charles Nelson Riley told me when he was in a play called Charlotte with Uta Hagen. He didn't have a line, not a line, nothing, nothing. And um, I said, why did you take it? Now, of course, for all we know, he was broke and needed the money. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I don't want to imply that, but for all we know, he wanted to work, needed a job. But he said to me, no, Uta Hagen was such an amazing actress that I just had to be that close to her on stage right. um, to see how she worked. And I imagine Alison Pill is getting quite the education, too, seeing how um, one of our greatest actresses, um, who I will admit, um, the day that I saw Marat Saad, um, it didn't take me long to delve into that program. This is 1966 to delve into that program and said, who is this woman? Mm-hmm. And it was Glenda Jackson. So, uh, so I came in early in her career and knew that she was really something special. So, uh, and really for her to win an Oscar for a touch of class, which was a light comedy really said a lot about that too, that she could play light comedy extraordinarily well. So this truly is a legend and Laurie Metcalf is fast becoming a legend. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, 
Um, so I think you really should get over to the Golden Theater. There aren't many seats in it, so uh, get there while you can and don't miss this. Two quick things. I, uh, Peter and I both saw the performance on uh, Saturday uh March 31st, and which, by, by the way, it was the 75th anniversary of the opening of Oklahoma, a block away uh, from where we were. But anyway, um, and I was seated behind Peter and, and a few uh, seats down. So I had a, a perfect view of your facial reactions. And there were a couple oh. of times when I looked over when Glenda Jackson was acting and and i could tell that you were in absolute heaven and i and i and i completely agreed with you one one amazing thing about her is that as i mentioned she was away from acting for a very long time but but in terms of her stage timing she does not seem to have lost a, a fraction of an iota of her ability in that area there are Lots of laughs in this, as Peter mentioned, and uh, she knows exactly when uh, the the crest of the laugh is coming, and she waits, and then she, as soon as it starts to die, she delivers her next line, and she did that several times with absolutely perfect, masterful timing. So I guess maybe it's uh, some people learn that or or develop that talent, and then they never lose it. Uh, she certainly hasn't. She's a total pro. You guys were at the evening or the matinee performance? Evening. Oh, I was there last night as well. Were you? Oh, how funny. Yeah, uh, Carrie Purcell was sitting right in front of me, too, and we were uh, chatting chatting about angels and uh, three tall women as well. Um, I, I said, uh, uh, this is what <laughs> – it's funny what you said before. This is what I meant about the Ensemble Award as well. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's going to be tough – for uh, nominators and voters uh, to pick between the embarrassment of the riches that we have here uh, in multiple play categories, as Michael uh, had had alluded to before, that we've got really and 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 we haven't even seen the, the big buzz show, the Harry Potter show yet, which right, is, uh, right. Yeah. which could also take us by surprise as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of positive uh word of mouth coming through london and through the early previews on broadway um i i i don't know what to say in addition to what you've said about three tall women uh just other than it just being amazing uh the device that they used um Mm. to uh on stage to yeah (laughs) the, the device that they used on stage to look back on their life uh, I thought was really interesting. Uh, and that's a great example of how design really can help uh, tell the story and why it's so important that design is not an afterthought uh, from from any standpoint. I, I don't know how, you, how else you could tell this story uh, in this respect um, without without some sort of device like this. Uh, Peter, have you have seen Three Tall Women before? Uh did they did they do this similarly in a previous production? No. No, it yeah. was uh, far more spare. It started at the vineyard and uh, they went to the promenade, I believe. Uh and um no, this is this is far more elaborate and um in every way. All right. Uh so there is uh Three Tall Women. 
All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we move on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can find the Broadway Radio lineup. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as um, links to some of the things we talked about today. I have the NT Live Angels in America stuff. We have the Andrew Keenan Bolger stuff all linked at BroadwayRadio.com if you want to check that out as well. Uh, so, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Yes. uh, The question was, what do Broadway, Cape Cod, Grand Street, Greenwich Village, London and Provincetown all have in common? And the answer is that Broadway had reviews named Follies with those words in front of them. They were the Broadway Follies, the Cape Cod Follies, the Grand Street Follies. You get the point. So that was the answer. Kenneth Hendel and Connor Colson were the only ones to get it. So let's see if we can do better this week. A current Broadway attraction actually mentions in its dialogue the actual name of the show that was the previous tenant in that same theater. What's the name of the theater, the current show, and the previous one? All right. So if you have a concept of what Peter just asked, (laughs) (laughs) email us at trivia. I have to make a Gantt chart or something about that. Email us at triviabroadradio.com, and we'll let you know if you are on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. You, you, that's somebody is you. Now all for one. And one for all. We'll make it together or together we'll fall. Standing strong against them all. All for one and one for all. Making toys that go skip a doo ba dee ba ba doo ba hey.